Here's a really special deal on a great product from our friends over at Fresh Pressed Olive Oil Club. You can now receive a $39 bottle of artisanal fresh pressed oil free if you just pay $1 to help cover shipping. And there's nothing else you must buy now or ever. It's a wonderful opportunity because with olive oil, my number one rule is the fresher, the better. That's because the olive is a fruit and olive oil is actually a fruit juice. Like any other fruit juice, extra virgin olive oil is at its glorious peak of freshness, flavor, and nutritional potency when fresh squeezed. And that's what's missing with so many supermarket olive oils. After sitting on the shelf for months or even years, they've lost their freshness and can't compare with just pressed Evu shipped direct from the new harvest. Here at Milk Street, we really like these oils' vibrant, grassy flavors, as well as the intoxicating aroma, just like a garden in a bottle. Prove it yourself with no obligation to buy anything ever. For your free $39 bottle direct from an award-winning artisanal farm, go to getfresh177.com. That's getfresh177.com. One last time, getfresh177.com. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y.com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part, all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. 
Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash milkstreet to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash milkstreet. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Massimo Bottura is an Italian restaurateur. He's also chef patron of Osteria Francescana. This is a three Michelin star restaurant based in Modena. His latest cookbook is called Bread is Gold, and it documents the recipes created at Refettorio Ambrosiano. This is his soup kitchen he founded in Milan in 2015. Along with many of the top chefs in the world, they came together to transform food waste into a three-star dining experience. The Pope said we go and we give light to the periphery. And uh, periphery is very important for me as uh, the food waste is periphery of food, as uh, the people we are feeding are the periphery of uh, humanity. Before we chat with Massimo, I have reporter Rebecca Lee Douglas here, who recently investigated a very strange food disorder. It's called ARFID, A-R-F-I-D. People with this condition find most foods so frightening and repulsive that they live on a very highly restrictive diet. Rebecca originally reported on this phenomenon on her podcast called Group, distributed by ACAST. Rebecca, how are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. How are you, Chris? So you did a story on ARFID. Yes. Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Can you tell me what that is? Sure. Yeah. It's a disorder which was actually just added to the most recent DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And it's a eating disorder, but it has nothing to do with body image, which is different than, you know, some of the other eating disorders that we usually think about, like anorexia or bulimia. And a lot of people who have ARFID will only eat like a handful of different types of very specific food. And some people will only eat like one or two types of food. And of course, you interviewed folks who do have this condition. Who did you interview and what did they have to say? Uh, I spoke with Morgan Ashley Gale, who is a 20-year-old art student. So Morgan mainly ate bread and cheese products. For a while, she only ate bread products. So she would eat like bread and butter sandwiches. Um, peanut butter was her only source of protein. But yeah, she she ended up adding cheese to her diet, which added a, a little bit more protein. But now it's mainly like waffles, grilled cheese, macaroni and cheese. Uh, adding pizza to her diet was like a huge thing for her. Uh, here's Morgan. So it feels, if someone is encouraging me to eat something that I feel like I can't eat, it feels like I am standing in front of a brick wall and someone is telling me to walk through the brick wall and they're not understanding that I can't walk through the brick wall like it's a wall. My chest feels really tight from my anxiety. Um, it's oh, it's not It's not pleasant. <laughs> A lot of people who have ARFID, I've heard them describe types of food that are not their safe food or, you know, one of those limited uh, foods that they feel comfortable eating as like when they look at it, it doesn't look edible to them. So what Morgan was referring to there is like if you 
we're, we're asked to eat like a stick or a rock or something that you just know is not food and, and you wouldn't eat. Uh, so for her, there's that element there. And then there's this, also this element of extreme fear. So you mentioned fear, uh, you know, safe foods, which implies some deep anxiety. Do you know if it's color, texture, smell, or is it the actual idea of the food that creates that fear? I think it's it's different for each individual who has ARFID. For some people, it is more like an anxiety disorder or a phobia, where it is like just an, an extreme fear of, of these new foods that aren't on their safe list. And then for other folks, it might have something more to do with texture of the food, with the smell of the food. Um, unlike people who are picky eaters, though, it, it doesn't have to do with the way the food tastes. How do they know it's a disorder if they've only, I mean, what is the definition of a disorder? Let's start with that. What would make it a disorder is if it affects your life to a degree where it becomes sort of like your world. So whereas somebody who might have a picky eating habit or might not like certain types of foods, but they're still able to get most of their nourishment and, you know, the vitamins and minerals that they need in order to function in a healthy way, then that's not a that's not a disorder. Um, a lot of individuals who have ARFID, yeah, it affects them medically also. Um, one of the folks that I spoke with just recently had uh, to have his entire colon removed. This is because of the restrictive diet? Yeah, his uh, doctors think it's connected. For a while, his only two safe foods were hamburger patties and French fries. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, there may be a connection so, there. Uh, one yeah, yeah. So that was all he ate for 14 years was just um, hamburger patties and French fries. So yeah, so it, it's it's quite different than picky eating. Um, if It affects your your health and your social life to a degree where it can be crippling. That's That's a disorder. Is there some other condition similar to ARFID that gives you any clues as to what's happening and why? I think that probably the most similar condition would be either uh, a a phobia. So the way that I was able to relate to it is I have pretty bad uh, arachnophobia. I'm terrified of spiders. And one of the mental health professionals that I spoke with, Dr. Kim DeRay, was saying that, you know, it would be like a spider on a plate. So... (laughs) You know, if uh, quite often when she's trying to get people to understand what ARFID is like, she will literally put a snake on a plate and then she'll be like, here, eat this. So for me, you know, I was picturing a restaurant filled with spiders on plates. You know, uh, folks with ARFID, quite often it's very hard for them to go to restaurants because they have this phobia that kicks in. Do they find people with ARFID also have compensating uh, abilities of perception? In other areas? Oh, uh, absolutely. Um, one of the women who I spoke with, Erin Kreck, blogs as Arfid Mom. Uh, she has a 10-year-old son, and she ca- says that he has superhero senses, is how she describes it. So um, he will smell things that she can't smell. He has a very sensitive sense of touch. It took a very long time for him to be able to take a shower and put water on his head because he was hyper aware of all of the little feelings of the water droplets. So here's Aaron. It really started to present in the second half of his first year when other kids were beginning to progress from the period baby foods or the period cereals and from the bottled milk uh, 
to foods that had more texture to them. My son never really took that step. There was a big struggle in presenting those foods to him. He was turning those foods away. And so really by one year of age, this seemed so different from other kids. He he didn't even eat his birthday cake at his first birthday party, and that was pretty sad to me. <laughs> so what do you think is the future for treatment uh, for this disorder? So um, it seems like there is some really interesting research going on. Um, I spoke with Dr. Evelyn Atia. She's the director of eating disorder research at Columbia University Medical Center. And she was actually one of the individuals who wrote the entry for ARFID in the new DSM. Here's Dr. Atia. The National Institutes for Health, I know, have become very interested in helping um, the field and the American public learn more about this relatively new, newly described condition. And there are some trials trying to identify some treatment strategies. And needless to say, that's going to be extremely important because when people now are aware that they are running into a problem that uh, clinicians can better recognize, well, they're very eager for us to be able to do something about this. Rebecca, thank you very much. That was really fascinating. Thank you. That was Rebecca Lee Douglas. She produces a podcast called Group about mental health that's distributed through ACAST. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, and listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Right now, my co-host, Sarah Malt, and I will take some of your calls. Sarah, of course, is the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book, Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready? You bet. Welcome to Mill Street Radio. Who's calling? This is Candace. I'm calling from Brainerd, Minnesota. How can we help you? I have a dilemma. I have one of those lovely old recipes from a grandmother that's very sketchy. Okay. And I have a significant other who would really, really, really like for me to make a rhubarb cream pie with a caramelized crust. Mm. It's my understanding that instead of your basic flaky pie crust, which is what I'm accustomed to making, it's got a thicker, chewy texture. Why is it called caramelized? Because it has a lot of sugar in the crust, you think? Yeah, that's that's what I would guess. The closest I can figure is take a pre-made pie crust and poke holes in it and allow the sugar and, you know... To my understanding, a caramelized crust happens accidentally. Sounds yummy. I love the idea. Well, I I do have a suggestion. You can. Now, is this a two-crust pie or a one-crust pie or a lattice pie? One 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 crust crust. pie. There goes that suggestion. Um, I wonder if it's something (laughs) like a graham cracker crust with a whole lot of sugar in it or something. The recipe itself is very sketchy. Well, does it say it, anything it, about the crust at all? Is it flour? Is it nuts? Is it graham crackers? Is it cookies? <laughs> the recipe says, cut your rhubarb into small cubes and place in pie crust. That's, <laughs> that's pretty real, sketchy. Yeah, that's real sketchy. And, and bake until done. Add sugar. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, it gives a little bit more instruction for the cream portion of it that you pour over the rhubarb. And I assume it has a substantial amount of sugar in this, otherwise it would be inedible. Right. Well, the things I know are this. This is all I know. 
Some recipes, okay. let's say like sweet potato pie, you can put a layer of brown sugar on a crust. You get a layer of sugar at the very bottom, which is nice. You can brush the exposed crust with water. You don't need milk or cream. And then liberally sprinkle sugar on it. And you get a really nice sugary, either on a top crust or on the crust around the edge of a one crust pie. So that would give you a nice uh-huh. crackly, really nice sugary crust. Or I guess you could up the amount of sugar in your crust. I would use graham crackers or vanilla wafers or something with melted mm-hmm. butter and sugar. Brown sugar. And then pat in the pan crust and pre-bake it for 20 minutes until it sets and Brown then cool sugar. it. yeah. Yeah. The crust you get with a pecan pie, the bottom crust, is, in my mind, the closest to a caramelized crust that I can conceive of. I think this is something that Sarah Moulton's kitchen ought to No, no, test. I think Milk Street, Milk Street. Not Milk my Street. kitchen is me, myself, and myself. I know she used a glass Pyrex plate. Yes, of course. This I know because I actually have the pie plate that she used. Is there anybody else you could interview besides your friend? I asked uh, for a little more detail on the crust. I said... Was it crispy at all? Was it thick and chewy? And the answer I got was it was chewy. Chewy. Not a flaky crust at all. I'm stumped. (laughs) Here's what I would do. I would cross out the word caramelized on the recipe and make a rhubarb cream pie (laughs) with your crust. (laughs) Just don't worry about it. I think I'll just tweak it as I go along. Don't let the weight of history (laughs) cloud the future. (laughs) Yes. All right, that's okay. the best we can do. I'm sorry. Thanks, Candace. Thanks, Candace. I do appreciate your, your yeah. help. Thank Pleasure. you so much. Yes. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tim from Kansas City. Is this a barbecue question or something else? <laughs> well, I've got a question about a horseradish, actually. Okay. I like to put horseradish on broth and other grilled items. I like the flavor of horseradish. The problem is it usually dominates whatever I put it on, and I don't get a lot of other flavors. And I was questioning... How can I make horseradish a little tamer? Well, for starters, if you grate fresh horseradish and let it sit, um, it loses flavor pretty quickly. It loses. As a matter of fact, it becomes downright boring. Yeah, after a couple hours, Mm. an hour. matter of fact, I did that. I made some boiled beef, which is an Austrian dish uh, a month or two ago. And you finish it with grated horseradish, and I grated it. That afternoon. And let it sit. And at 7 or 8 o'clock at night, I couldn't taste the horseradish. No, it, <laughs> it just gets so... I mean, right away, you're absolutely yeah. right. If you grate it fresh, say, onto oysters or something, you could barely taste the oyster for the horseradish. Well, you can make a horseradish cream, essentially, with some vinegar, etc. The best thing to do is to arrest that flavor and tame it at the same time by adding salt and vinegar. So you grate it first and then add salt and vinegar, and uh, it should be of the heat that you want. Or, you know, at least not overwhelming and also not dead as doornails, which it is straight up a couple hours later. Also, I find if you add horseradish to, like, mashed potatoes, which have fat in it, I find fat tends to ameliorate the bite of horseradish. But would this be horseradish that you already put vinegar and salt on? No, no. If you grate horseradish and put it and mix it into mashed potatoes with, at the last with cream and butter, I find that it, the fat also cuts, seems to, cuts down that heat. Cuts that really bright, tangy heat. Yeah. yeah, I do want to say, because I think fresh horseradish is wonderful, but you have to be careful because it's so intense when you grate it, right, Tim? Absolutely. Yeah, it makes you really cry. You know, I wanted to do a big batch, and I thought, oh, well, I'll just chop it up in the food processor. <laughs> you know, if you put it in the food processor and lift off that lid, it's like napalm in your eyes. It's terrible. Uh, my suggestion would be to add vinegar and salt. My suggestion is leave it sit around for two or three hours, and then, <laughs> and then okay. it'll be very, very mild. So there you go. Thanks for calling. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah, Bye. take care.
This is Milstie Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know why your cheesecake cracks or why your cream sauce separates, give us a call anytime. 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or please send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Dari Berkowitz. Hi, Dori. How can we help you? Well, I am the world's worst housekeeper, but my kitchen is very clean. Good for you. <laughs> my problem is my glass lids for the cookware. And, you know, on TV, they're always crystal clear and sparkling, and I can't imagine they use new lids every time. Yes, we do. Um, I've... No, no, oh. no, that's what happens. Yeah, every season no, of every cooking out. show, they buy new lids, yeah. Let's be honest. I'm so defeated. I know. Well, <laughs> the truth always hurts, yeah. So all the different methods that I've tried to no avail are really to no avail. Well, I did ask our food editor, Matt Card. He and I were on the road recently doing some things, some events, and he told me that <laughs> vodka is very good at cleaning off residue from glass and things. And actually, he's worked in a restaurant for many years. He says they use it a lot. Of course, I guess there's a lot of vodka around <laughs> But uh, they yeah. use it as a cleaner, so I don't know. I've Not never heard that. I never heard that either. You know what? Sometimes I do if it's baked on in an area that you can get to, you know, not in a crevice on the glass lid. Right. I'll use a razor blade. Aha. Uh-huh. I use a kind razor. Of like what I use for my, I have the smooth cooktop. Me and too. I use the razor blade to get gunk Me too. off of there. Yeah. It's not going to hurt the glass at all. Just make sure you don't hurt you. Yeah, well. So do you walk around <laughs> town with a box cutter or what? I mean, you... I have one in my yeah. drawer. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Really? Wow. I guess Don't mess no with Sarah. vodka. <laughs> I get no vodka if you're going to use the razor blade. <laughs> well, I, I, I think vodka is just for grease. It's not going to be for baked on not stuff. For, but okay. if you have a greasy top, that we get rid of the grease, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're clean because they're oh. squeaky when I finish washing them, but they never get clear again. Well, ever. there's two ways of dealing with things like this. One is not to notice. Yeah, well. And I, I don't really <laughs> care as long as it's clean. It's not horrific. Right. I mean, you were talking about little... Bits and pieces of baked on food? No, not pieces of schmutz. Just they never get clear. They always have some sort of, if you hold it up to the light, and I'm not that obsessive, really. I'm the world's worst housekeeper. But if you hold it up to the light, you can see it's just, you know, it's just not clear glass. Well, is this because it has, well, it could be there are tiny little scratches all over the glass. You think that's what it is from cleaning? You use something a little abrasive on it, and maybe you scratch the glass. That's what I think. Maybe. Oh, terrific. Okay. (laughs) I'm supposed to make you feel better when you call. I'm not supposed to depress you. Um, But if if it's clean, you say it's clean, there's nothing baked on, but it's just translucent, not transparent. I would say you've got scratches. you know, areas on it that just always look icky. I think but, you right. may have used something a little too strong on it, probably. But I'd say try vodka. And no. have, yeah. Okay. Drink vodka, and, and then ha- you won't yeah, worry about your, yourself. Your, your glass lids on your cookware. Right. Right. That's right. One for me, one for the lid. Right. Oh, there you go. There you go. I think I, I just wouldn't worry about it. Okay. And TV shows get new lids every year. Yeah. So that's how so it works. So you don't yeah, need I to guess. feel bad about okay. that. Okay. Dory. Thank you so much, yeah. and I'm so happy about Milk Street. I Thank have you to tell so you, I'm enjoying every, every part of it. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thanks, Dory. Okay. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Massimo Bottura, an Italian restaurateur and the chef patron of Osteria Francescana, a three-star Michelin restaurant based in Modena. His latest book is called Bread is Gold. Coming up after the break.
I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, Crusty bread, it's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um like lemon meringue pie, that would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week, having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh wow, yeah, that's really good.
This is Jason Perkins again. Just wanted to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. Massimo Batura is an Italian restaurateur, also chef patron of Osteria Francescana, a three-star Michelin restaurant based in Modena. His latest book is Bread is Gold, and it documents the recipes created at Refettorio Ambrosiano. This was an impromptu soup kitchen created in Milan by some of the top chefs in the world. Um, so your new book is Bread is Gold. Uh, it's based on a recipe, a bread and milk recipe from your childhood. Uh, just tell us very quickly how your mother made that. It's a recipe that my mom was uh, cooking for me when uh, before going to bed. A warm cup of milk, some breadcrumbs, a little bit of sugar, chocolate or coffee, depends what we add. And uh, it was my favorite meal. And uh, if I'm thinking about uh, my daughter's favorite recipe, that is uh, breadcrumbs, uh, some parmigiano, some eggs, um, and a touch of nutmeg, uh, make very quick a little dough, squeeze into the squeezer for mashed potato, and uh, cook this uh, breadcrumbs noodle into a chicken broth, is my daughter's favorite. And uh, that was uh, a recipe that inspires me. When uh, two years ago, I decided to interpret the Universal Exposition by myself involving the 65 most influential chefs in the world. So bread is gold if you look at the bread with the right eyes. If you ask bread the right question, you know. So let's just set the stage here, literally. So there's an exposition in Milan, I believe, in 2015. Yeah. It's a universal exposition. Universal. It's one of every four years. That was before it was in Beijing, and then after it was in Milan. And you got the idea of taking all the, the wasted food at that time and then having these chefs cook these meals. Now, could you describe there was an, an old theater there from the 1930s, and you yeah. went in and redid it. So what was the name of the theater, and how did you refurbish it for the refectorio? Which I, I, in English, I assume means refectory, which yes. is a place monks and nuns would, would eat their meals. Right? Exactly, exactly. You know, the numbers of the needy, you know, the people, they don't have anything to eat are 860 million. And we have uh, 1.5 billion overweight and uh, 1.3 billion tons of food that are wasted every year. So the answer is very easy. First of all, if you want to feed the planet, you have to fight waste. And uh, so I knock at the door of the church, and, uh, and one week later, they called me, and they said, come to Milan, please. Uh, but the, the Pope said, we go and we give light to the periphery. And uh, periphery is very important for me, as uh, the food waste is periphery of food, as uh, the people we are feeding are the periphery of uh, humanity. So we went, uh, we went to this uh, neglected neighborhood in Milan called Quartiere Greco, and we took over the, the movie theater from 1930. And uh, with the help of the architects, designers, and artists, we create an amazing place 
first of all, to rebuild the dignity of the people, to create hospitality, to create a place uh, who, who, who rediscover the old uh, uh, pleasure of what it is uh, to cook for people. And um, all the best chefs in the world, they said, yes, of course, we're going to be with you. Canada uh, sponsored a documentary that is now on Netflix called Theater of Life. And, uh, but to spread the word, I think uh, we need a book. You say beauty without good isn't beautiful. Good needs beauty to convey its message. So when you say you need beauty, how does beauty and good go together? You know, the moment uh, you involve uh, the best chef in the world, they're going to give you time, creativity, and uh, vision. So, you know, we have to imagine what is going to be. And this is the beauty of creativity. Man is not living by bread alone. These are very important words that I think that make the difference. An example. We open, after Milan, we open uh, Rio de Janeiro in the, in the most dangerous place in Rio, in uh, Lapa. We open Modena, Bologna, and London. The day first, London, Day one, we open, and uh, after the service, an old lady asked for a microphone. She said to me, can I have a microphone? Because I want to, you know, share my idea with uh, everyone. So I said, of course. And she started like this. This is the, one of the most beautiful places i ever seen in my life. This is going to create community for us. It's going to be the... It very, very, very important for everybody. And uh, now I can die very happy. I'm 92. I, everyone start crying, you know. The, she got immediately the feeling and the message that we try to transfer with this project, you know. Uh, let's talk about you for a second. So you opened the Trattoria back in the 1980s, uh, but you didn't have a lot of experience cooking professionally, but you opened yeah. it pretty quickly. So what was that like in, in the first <laughs> the first couple nights when you we, all of a sudden you were a chef and a restaurateur? Actually, I was very, very, very lucky. My mom was a great gourmet, very good cook, but she was cooking for 10, 20 people every day, you know, the family, very large family. And um, so... Together, we became very successful immediately from day one. And uh, after a couple of years, the traditional cuisine was enough for me because I was exposed uh, since I was a kid to many different cuisine and great food. So I met uh, this French chef, two-star Michelin, who was working in Piacenza. And uh, he really went deep into classic cuisine. So what came out was like, French classic technique mixed with uh, traditional uh, Emilia food. Like Emilia Romagna is, uh, is called the Food Valley because it's like a mythic place. And, uh, you know, at that point, uh, Alain Ducasse uh, came uh, and ate uh, the Osteria Francescana. That was uh, 92. And uh, he was really impressed by the food I was serving him. And invite me in uh, to cook with him uh, at uh, Monte Carlo at the Hotel de Paris, uh, Louis Quinze. 
it was a three-star Michelin, very innovative at that time because it was the first uh, French chef who was switching butter and cream with olive oil. And uh, he was uh, the first one who brought vegetables into the, the pan and the plate. So what was it like uh, working with Ducasse at Louis Cannes? Just give us a couple examples of <laughs> something he was doing that you just said, well, you know, I've never seen that before. Yeah, it was like, uh, it was a dream, you know. At that time, there was another place like that in the world. Ducasse was able to do whatever he wants in, a, in, in just that hotel, you know. He had uh, the top floor, uh, with a, a very traditional restaurant. He had the main floor, very casual, and uh, the garden on, uh, on the piazza that uh, was uh, Louis XV. And then you had a room called the Salam Pier for the kings. Hmm. They were the guests of Ranieri, you know, the prince of, Monte- yeah. of Monaco. And uh, so Ducasse, what he did with me, he said, you can do whatever you want. You choose. And uh, I remember one of the key points of my career was when I left uh, the hotel. And uh, I met him uh, in the lobby. He looked at me and he said, so how you feel? I said, I feel great. You know, it's an incredible experience, but I have to go back now. And he said to me, so did you take notes? Do you have something? I said, yeah, I have a book full of notes. And uh, it's, uh, it's incredible. It's beautiful. And he um, said, show me, show me. You know what he did? He crashed the book. Just like that. He threw <laughs> it in the garbage saying, you can't stand up on your feet. Go. You know, it was shocking for me. Shocking. I was mad for two years. But I understood <laughs> I understood what he was talking about. He said, don't recreate those recipes. Don't do that because it would be just a copy. Just trust yourself and trust your palate and go and cook whatever you want. Let me ask another question. Do you think, let's take Italy. Is there a moment in the development of a culture where you think the food and the culture are perfectly suited for each other and it's the best? For example... There's, what, 30 40% food waste in the world today with modern culture. But in Italy in the 1930s, my guess is there was almost no food waste, right? So no. was, there, was there a moment in Italy, for example, when you think the culture was at its highest and, and so was the food? Or we just continue evolving? I remember my grandmother about uh, developing this idea that you were talking about. Starting from that reason... Uh, you know, I was thinking about, I'm thinking about my grandmother when she was saying to me, our country guys, they are killing the pig uh, next week. So we have to go, we have to go. And uh, we were going there and saying, and said, you know, this is a spiritual act because this pig is part of the family. And so he's giving his life for, you know, to feed the whole family for the whole year. You know, so we have to use every single bones, uh, uh, every single thing. And most of the, the plates, the recipes from uh, the basis Italian cuisine are, they comes from this uh, reason, you know, you don't throw away anything because with the knowledge that we have, we can create amazing food with nothing. And the book is about that. 
you know, ordinary ingredients, extraordinary meals. Yeah, that seems like you said it perfectly in just a few <laughs> words. Um, yeah. <laughs> Massimo, thank you. I, I love the book. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And it's, it's one of those rare books where you have top chefs doing something that actually makes sense for the home kitchen as well. So it's very important to me. And, uh, you know, we ask that. And uh, before publish it, we, we try every single recipe home with uh, all my guys from Osteria Francescana in their day off. They were trying all these different recipes and we were correcting them with the right proportion. So you're going to make home every single recipe, I, I bet. Well, when I get through the whole book, I'll call you. And I'll have, good, and good. I'll have You're you going to win a prize. You're going to win a prize, a dinner at Osteria. <laughs> okay. Massimo, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. My pleasure. It was a pleasure for me, too. That was Massimo Batura, an Italian restaurateur, also chef at Osteria Francescana, a three-star Michelin restaurant based in Modena. His newest cookbook is called Bread is Gold, which documents the recipes created at Refettorio Ambrosiano, his soup kitchen combating food waste. Orson Welles once said, the enemy of art is the absence of limitations. Or translated to the kitchen, you might say, too many choices spoils the broth. Massimo Batura's most memorable recipe is his mother's, warm milk, bread, sugar, and chocolate. That's not comfort food. That's just good food. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen in Milk Street to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? Okay, I'm going to rant about cheesecakes. I don't like wet cheesecakes, and I don't like heavy cheesecakes. And about 20 years ago, I was in New York, uh, below house and near the Bowery somewhere, and there was a great Italian restaurant, and they had a ricotta cheesecake, which is nothing new, but it had almost a black top to it. It was cracked. Uh, It was nice and dry. It was kind of light and had a lot of flavor. And so instead of just cream cheese, obviously ricotta is the base. So I thought we should take a shot at that because I like it. (laughs) That's an excellent reason to do a recipe. So how do we get started? So just to start, Chris, you just said that you liked a dry black cracked cheesecake. So I just sort of want to break it down for anyone listening that it is delicious and it really is a cheesecake. I mean, we use ricotta, like you said. We also use mascarpone, which is basically an Italian cream cheese, but it's a little bit lighter. It's a little bit creamier. Uh, This cheesecake has some structure to it because we add a little bit of semolina flour, which, you know, we think of pasta in the U.S., but just a little bit gives it that beautiful crust and also gives it some structure. And in the end, you end up with a much lighter, not soggy, leaden cheesecake. So is this the same gig? Whole eggs, cream cheese or cheese, standing mixer, beat them, put them in a uh, springform pan, and then, of course, into the water bath. No, Chris. Uh, Two things. First of all, it's basically the same technique, but you do need to whip the egg whites. That's going to give you that light, fluffy structure we're looking for. But... Happy news for you, no water bath is necessary. You're simply going to throw it in the oven and bake it for 40 to 45 minutes. You do want to tap it on the counter before you throw it in the oven to get rid of any air bubbles. And then when it just is set but has a little bit of jiggle, you take it out. And then, of course, you have to be patient. It needs to cool for two hours and then needs to go into the fridge to cool a bit longer. But no water bath. So no water bath. But now let's get to the most often asked culinary question in the world, at least America, is... Why does my cheesecake crack on the top? So does this crack? Chris, it does, but you don't have to worry about it. So with a traditional cheesecake where you have your water bath, you have your dense piece of cheesecake, if it cracks on top, that probably means you overcooked your cheesecake. 
Here, you don't have to worry about it. With the light ricotta texture, the egg whites, the semolina, it will crack, but it's not overcooked. So just don't worry about it. So no water bath, don't have to worry about the cracking, delicious ricotta flavor. Uh, what could be better? Nothing, so it's perfect cheesecake. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for ricotta semolina cheesecake at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after the break. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. This is Most Jay Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, are you ready for a new batch of, uh, of phone calls? Yeah, let's take some calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? This is Pat Henderson from Jacksonville, Florida. Hi, Pat. How can we help you today? Well, I have a probably would seem an insignificant question to most people, but I see in recipes hot paprika and sweet paprika and smoked. And I'm wondering, does it really make a difference if I just use plain paprika instead of the other? 
Well, let me ask you a question. Do you like the flavor of, you know, say, bacon in a recipe? I mean, do you like that smoked aroma? Some things, like pita bread, I like the smoked paprika in uh, sour cream and some beans mashed up on pita bread. So it's good that way. Are you a spicy person or not so much? Not so much. Was that a philosophical question or was that a culinary question? <laughs> that was a culinary <laughs> question. No, no, no. The short answer is it makes a huge difference because a hot versus mild versus smoky are totally different. And a smoked paprika, which they use, of course, in Spain. You can also get hot smoked and cold smoked, yeah. Of course. It can oh. both be spicy and smoky. Well, okay, but it, well, here's an example. My sister-in-law, about six months ago, made a recipe from Milk Street, and it called for a tablespoon of paprika. She mistakenly used a tablespoon of chili powder. In, needless to say, it was almost inedible. So hot versus sweet versus smoky would be very different. Yeah. But because you're not such a spicy person, you maybe it'd be nice, if you like that smoky taste, to have one smoked, you know, smoked sweet and one plain sweet. Paprika is really a wonderful ingredient. My mother used to use it, and she was a great cook, but she did what everybody else did. You know, she'd put it on hard-boiled egg, stuffed, stuffed eggs. eggs, or she'd put it on top of chicken, which is sort of weird because it burns, and use it, you know, as decoration. But now, you know, because of the Spanish chefs and Hungarian chefs, we know that paprika brings so much more to the mix. You know, I was going to mention one of my favorite sources for things Spanish is La Tienda, and they have, I think, all the different kinds of paprika. So, well, there's uh, Jose Andres, the famous Spanish chef out of Washington, makes a, a garlic soup. Yeah. It's garlic, stale bread, some water, and smoked paprika, like three tablespoons of smoked paprika. Wow. And he throws in some olive oil, and he throws in some egg at the end, and it's just fabulous. Smoked. That's, that sounds so good. And, and the smoked paprika just drives the whole thing. You know, one last thing about smoked paprika is that if you have vegetarians in your family and you want to add some smoke to a recipe, you know, the way people usually do it is through bacon or Canadian bacon or ham. And one way to accommodate vegetarians is to add smoked paprika. Okay, I'll have bacon and eggs for breakfast and you can have pimenton, <laughs> smoked paprika with your eggs in the morning. Well, that would be good, actually. So the answer is get sweet and get smoked. You yeah. can leave aside the... Okay, smoke. thanks, Pat. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thanks so much. Yeah, pleasure. Bye-bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Chris. Hi, how are you? Good. This is Chris, too. Good. We're even. <laughs> Chris, meet Chris. Yeah. How can we help you? There's a lot of recipes that call for feta cheese, and I really can't stand the taste of feta cheese or blue cheese. So is there a good substitute to use? Cotilla, that Mexican fresh cheese, I think is much milder, but it has a similar texture to it. That ricotta would be my salada is ricotta top of salada. my list, yeah. which is a salted, drained ricotta cheese. So it's firm. So it's got the same tanginess. My guess is you don't like feta because you think it's sort of barnyardy. I haven't had it in years because I know I can't stand the taste of it. I love ricotta, though. Well, ricotta salada is very different than the ricotta you know, but it's nothing like feta. And I, I agree with Chris about the cotilla also. Yeah, cotilla is great if you can find it. It's a, a drier texture, obviously, than regular cheese. Okay, uh, like great. Ricotta. I'd give them a try. Yeah, cotilla or ricotta salada, and that should solve your problem. I will let you know. All, All right. right. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thanks, Chris. You're welcome. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. 
This week's Mill Street Basic is about a new way to use dried mushrooms. Of course, they add a lot of savor, a lot of umami to any soup, stew, or even a pasta sauce. But the problem is that they require a fair amount of time-consuming hydration to bring them back and then chopping before use. Now, we have a shortcut. Simply grind them in a spice grinder. Here's how to do it. Break the dried mushrooms into coarse pieces, put them in a spice grinder, and then grind them to a fine dust in just a few seconds. Now, any variety works, although we like Chinese mushrooms or Japanese shiitakes or porcinis. They seem to have the strongest flavors. Once you have the mushroom dust, you can add them to any pasta sauce, a pan sauce, or even use them as a crust on meat for a deep, savory flavor boost. Adam Gopnik is a staff writer at The New Yorker. Recently, his son took a job as a bartender in Baltimore, and Gopnik has a few interesting observations about what his son's generation is drinking these days. Adam, how are you? I am very well today, Christopher. How are you? I, I, my mind needs some uh, exercise, and that's, that's why I'm calling. So uh... I am a human stationary bike. That's, all, <laughs> that's what I'm here to do. Let me tell you a story, Chris. My wonderful son, Luke, went off to Baltimore this summer. He chased a girl to Johns Hopkins where she was doing a, an internship. And he went off pounding the pavement in Baltimore till he at last his feet led him to an artisanal hipster restaurant. And he talked his way into a job as a bartender. So he spent his summer as a bartender in Baltimore. And you can imagine the pride with which I articulated uh, that truth to friends all over. What's Luke doing? Oh, he's spending the summer as a bartender in Baltimore. And you can also imagine the look of immeasurable pain that crossed his mother's face when I would say this, because it would imply that his fate in life was to be a bartender, not to be the philosopher, musician, filmmaker that, in fact, he is destined to be in her mind. But I was fascinated because he called me and wanted some advice about it. And I could give him a little bit of advice about wines, of course. But really what he was consumed in doing in the city of Baltimore all summer was making mixed drinks. And I got fascinated and thought a lot, and now I will ask you to work your knees around this problem, of why it is that 20-somethings, and Luke is 23, are so utterly in love with mixed drinks in a way that I think it's fair to say would have seemed to us generationally to be embarrassing. In other words, we associated Bronxes and Manhattans, perhaps not martinis, but that whole world of sweetened mixed drinks as something that only your uncle Ron and your, your Aunt Ruth would be doing while they played canasta. But for 20-somethings, as you know, it is the, the mixed drink. That's what they love. And they regard us uh, wine guzzlers with our swirling glasses and our long pulls and our ahs and oohs and uh, can't you taste the, uh, the terroir in there. They regard us with some embarrassment. They regard us, in fact, Christopher, with the same embarrassment with which we regarded our uncles and aunts and parents when they were having Bronxes and Manhattans and old fashions. Well, I, I'm going to have to side with your son on this one because I, <laughs> I, I have a mixed drink every evening, an old fashioned. And I, I'll say two things. There's a lovely quote from the 1925 Savoy Hotel cocktail book, uh, one of the first. Mm -hmm. And the bartender said, cocktails should be had cold and fast. And mm -hmm. so I, I, I like that image of making a, a mixed drink and drinking it fast and cold. The second is a cocktail is a recipe. There's no recipe for wine. There's, 
you have different components and you can use 100 different kinds of bitters and different kinds of simple syrups and different kinds of rye versus bourbon, different brands. It, there's a lot to do there. There's a, there's a formula. There's personal taste. There's my personal version. I think it's perfectly suited to a generation that is infinitely interested in the, in the specifics of enjoyment. Well, you have anticipated my conclusion <laughs> sorry. quite precisely. The first part of it, I think, is true. And I will confess that after a lifetime of wine drinking, I now have come to love uh, a, a jot of dark rum mixed with coconut water or mm. lime or any of the other wonderful things you can mix dark rum with before I open a bottle of wine. This, my wife also <laughs> views this with some alarm. But I think the second thing is the crucial thing. You know, one of the most influential and important pieces of sociological research ever published in America was a paper by the great sociologist Howard Becker, who calls himself Howie Becker, all the way back in the 1940s. And it was called On the Consumption of Marijuana. It was so long ago that they spelled marijuana with an H. Remember the way they used to spell it in Reefer Madness and so on? And in it, Howie Becker, who was a sociologist but also a jazz pianist of some stature and capacity himself, wrote about this shocking thing. How is it that uh, jazz musicians smoke marijuana? What's the sociology smoking marijuana? And basically what he said is, you don't smoke the joint, you smoke the nightclub. In other words, what was the really appealing thing about it wasn't so much your response to the drug. What is pleasure-giving is all the apparatus, all of the lore, all of the folk culture that surrounds us. Remember, it takes a village to raise a child? Well, it takes a nightclub to smoke a reefer. That was Becker's <laughs> point. That what we're really after is not so much the experience of the intoxication, which we can get a lot of different ways. What we're really after is being inducted into that charm circle. And exactly as you just said, Christopher, I think that's exactly the appeal of the mixed drink to my son's generation. There's a craft you have to learn. There's a language you have to master. There are recipes you have to follow. And so being a bartender in his generation isn't a lesser job. It's a higher job because you become the air traffic controller, so to speak, of your generation's inebriation. Well, I'd say there's one other element. You know, I love the old Ian Fleming, James Bond novels. I've read them Mm -hmm. a dozen times. When Bond goes to eat or drink, he always says, I'm extremely particular about my food because I travel a lot and I eat alone. And there was something about taking care and attention, how and what you drink and eat, which I found uh, to be, well, it's an example of how to live a rich and full life. And and I I believe in that. It's it's not finicky. It's not silly. There there is a truth there. And I, I think I found it in the James Bond books. He cared about the experience and he took the time to learn something about it. I, I think that's okay. I, it's so funny you mention that. We've never discussed Ian Fleming or James Bond, but I completely share your absorption in them as a kid and right to this day. And it's true, and it's something that the movies never picked up on. Bond is very precise. I can remember the meals he has at Blades Club right. in Moonraker or the meal he actually has in the first novel in Casino Royale. And he says, in, in England, I live on roast beef. but When I'm traveling, I want things precisely so. And to this day, I don't know if you remember, not only does he have the famous vodka martini, shaken, not stirred, but he also drinks Tattinger, uh, which in those days was an a unusual uh, mark of champagne. And I've never opened a bottle of, of Tattinger, as I learned to call it in France, without a thrill of kinship with Bond. But I think every generation needs to learn 
a code of their own. Our generation, I do think, Christopher, learned the code of wine. We learned the varietals. We learned the areas of France. We learned how to be fussy and and pretentious, no doubt, but also specific, as you said, how to be specific about wine. And it's fascinating in the endless cycling of generations that their generation, my son's generation, is learning to be specific about spirits. And every generation has to find, as Howie Becker explained so well, has to find not a one potion that will inebriate them, but one room that they can belong in. Adam, it's time to invest in cocktail shakers. You <laughs> it's, bet. It's, I'll, I'll meet you. I'll meet you at the bar. Adam Gopnik, thank you so much. Pleasure talking, Chris. That was Adam Gopnik, staff writer for The New Yorker. Harry Craddock, the head barman of the American Bar at the Savoy Hotel in London in the 1920s and 30s, once said that a cocktail should be drunk cold and fast. Now, I'm not one to argue with the likes of Harry Craddock, but his pronouncement begs an obvious question, which, of course, is, should pleasure be savored or taken? Now, I would note that those who worry about a deficit of pleasure savor it, while those who are confident of a surplus enjoy it quickly and boldly. Either way, as Nigella Lawson once said, those who feel guilty about pleasure don't deserve to have it. That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, you can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to the magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks so much for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Mm-hmm.